There's also an outline in the program this morning. If you're a note-taking type of person, you can take notes there. Uh, also on the back of that outline is always what we call our companion article written by our brother Larry Bailey. He does such an excellent job of uh, writing those articles that often uh, look at the passage from a bit of a different viewpoint than I sometimes do. Sometimes we're right along the same thing and sometimes we see something very different. It's uh, wonderful how the God works that out uh, through those things. So uh, today we're talking about four words, four words that can keep us going, all right? In April of 2013, an article in the USA Today money section reported that the Apple Corporation stock had been struggling. In fact, according to the article, the Apple stock decline is reaching a, a historic order of magnitude, shaking the faith of investors. Shares were down 44%, and the crash obliterated $291 billion in shareholder wealth. What in the world precipitated this rapid decline of the stock? Well, the causes were complex, but the article focused on one primary factor, the death of the co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs. Now, Apple is not the only company that has struggled in the absence of a successful CEO. Research has shown that the, the fact that a sick or a dying CEO is generally a really big problem right away for stocks. The article noted that when a CEO leaves a company, the short-term shock turns into long-term disappointment. Well, without Steve Jobs, one prominent analyst contended, Apple is in danger of becoming just another stock. And the phenomena of Apple is unwinding, doom and gloom. Well, that's an interesting little story, isn't it? But as I read that, I thought about this. It's quite different, the story, for believers in Jesus Christ. You see, when Jesus left this world, he promised that he was not leaving us. We've looked at that over the last couple of weeks. He said, I'm going to send somebody called the helper, the Holy Spirit. And so instead, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, Jesus said he would empower us, empower us. And so we can turn our short-term shock into long-term spiritual vitality. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment, what it would have been like to be one of those disciples and to hear Jesus say, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a while, you will see me. Now, we have the gift of hindsight. Those words aren't disturbing to us. But to those disciples, they were confusing and frightful. Jesus' statement, in fact, caused them to begin to ask one another, what is he talking about? How long is a little while? Can't you just see the guys, you know, they're panicking. You know what, do you know anything? What do you think he means by that? And as the disciples were stepping further into their anxiety and their fear and their worry, Jesus at the same time was preparing to, sh to share with them the answer, the answer of how to replace 
the stress of uncertainty with confident expectation in him and in his perfect plan. And so in his final statement to the disciples before he is arrested and taken away to the cross, Jesus provides four key words or themes that will keep them, and by the way, keep us moving forward toward his preferred future for us rather than back into the uncertainties of this world. And the the very first theme or word that Jesus introduces is this wonderful word, joy. Joy. And so we want to talk about moving from sorrow to joy. Moving from sorrow to joy. So let's consider the power of real joy by reading the words of Jesus together as recorded in John 16, verses 20 through 22. The words are on the screen and I invite you to read them with me. The words of Jesus. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Amen. The words of our Lord. So in verse 20, we're told that the religious world rejoiced at the death of Jesus. Why? Because it hated Jesus. Because he threatened their system. Because he confronted their leaders about their false teaching about who God truly is. And so though the world was glad when Jesus was crucified, one day... On that last day, when Jesus returns a second time, God's enemies will indeed be saddened by the return of the Lord because he'll return in glory to the world and the people that he's created. But in this passage, Jesus said that the grief of his absence would last a a little while for those who love him. And, you know, like those early disciples, we live in a time that's filled with crises. Isn't that right? I don't know about you, but I've got crises in my life. You do too. We've got crises around us. We experience trouble in our communities, in our nation, in our world. We are acquainted with sorrow and grief in our our homes, in our families, in our schools, even at times in our churches. But also, like those early disciples, Jesus says to us, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice. And no one, no one will take your joy from you. What about you? Do you, do you ever experience, a, say, a, a mood of weariness? or sadness about life because of the evil and the suffering all around you. Maybe it's something like the loss of a relationship or a job 
or your health or your home. Maybe you're saddened by the conditions of this world. Perhaps you're grieving over your, your past, your, your sin, and the consequences that followed it. Maybe your sorrow is because someone that you love is suffering from a terminal illness or because perhaps you've lost a loved one. Grief, sorrow, suffering. All of us have and will face those times. But we must remind one another of the words of the Lord. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn to joy. By the way, that's one of the critical, important things about gathering as the body of Christ. Because when one is weak, others can lift them up. When one is rejoicing, others can rejoice with them. We can help one another and remind one another of the truths of Scripture, particularly this truth, your Sorrow will turn to joy. You see, we are all in process. We're all in movement from sorrow to joy. Jesus himself was well acquainted with sorrow and suffering and grief and the process of moving toward joy. There's a great little passage in Hebrews chapter 12 where it reminds us of this prophecy process. Uh, It's written of Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You ever get tired, weary, run down? Are you losing heart because of the things of this life? Remember Jesus, because he understood that. He'd been there. To help the disciples understand this process even more, Jesus, as he often does, shares a a compelling life illustration beginning in verse 21 of the text, when he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a child has been born into the world. Now, why would Jesus compare the disciples' grief with the pain a woman experiences in childbirth? He certainly wasn't making light of their present grief or any future grief. You know, not long after he spoke these words, within hours, Jesus himself would experience sorrow and pain in the Garden of Gethsemane and then incredible suffering on the cross. And he knew that when his family And his dear friends, his followers, his disciples, when they saw his bruised and beaten body hanging on the cross, they would be filled with incredible anguish. Of course they would. You know, people can endure the most 
horrible things. Suffering, hardship, they can endure it if they know there's a purpose in it or if there is a hope of positive outcome in the end. But you know, suffering without any hope is the ultimate agony. Students will study hard. People will work very long hours. Parents will sacrifice for their kids because of the hope for a better future. Even grief, even the deepest grief when it causes us to turn to God and put our hope in him will eventually lead us into a place of joy of confident expectation of better things to come. And so Jesus chooses the image of a new birth to focus primarily on the present pain. But he's letting his disciples know that the pain certainly isn't without purpose or a reward. And what I find amazing here is that Jesus, who knows that he will be facing within the next few hours terrible pain, is taking time to comfort his disciples. He's the one who's going to suffer for the sin of the world, and yet he's busy taking away the dread of fear for his disciples by leaving them with hope. The great 19th century Christian philosopher C.K. Chesterton said this. He said, hope means hoping when things are hopeless or it's no virtue at all. As long as matters are really hopeful, hope is mere flattery or platitude. It's only when everything is hopeless that hope begins to be a strength. You see, God desires that we as his people experience this hope, hope of eternity, hope of answered prayer, hope of changed hearts and lives. And when that hope is realized, we experience joy. You see, the devil is busy trying to steal our hope. And usually it's not that hard for him to do. That's because if our hope is merely in things, in relationships, in work, in our own moral goodness, in what we own, our personal pleasure, our experiences, our accomplishments, our good health. If our hope is in those things, then certainly hope can be taken from us. And when our hope is taken, guess what? So is our joy. And so, friends, we need to be reminded to place our hope in the right place, in fact, in the right person. God's word tells us to set our hope in him. Set our hope in receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus is teaching us that if our hope is in the right place, in the right person, we do not have to live a joyless life since what is most precious can never be taken away. Like that exhausted mother holding her newborn baby for the very first time, 
We can endure sorrow because the joy is coming. And Jesus wants us to experience real, true joy. And so we are moving from sorrow to joy. And next, Jesus introduces a second theme, a second word, and that is love. We are moving from loss to love. Let's consider the strength of true biblical love. I'd like to invite you to read more of Jesus' answer to his disciples in verses 25 through 27. Let's read this together. Again, from Jesus. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from the Father, from God. Amen. And so here we learn that we can also face challenges and difficulties and losses in this life with courage when we receive the Father's special love for us. Jesus explains why the disciples will go directly to the Father in prayer after he goes to the Father, following his resurrection, his ascension. He says, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came forth from God. And so the disciples would be go, able to go directly to the Father because of his special love for them. This word for love refers to a, a warm, affectionate, deep kind of love. And this special love for the disciples was based directly on their relationship with Jesus. You know, it occurs to me that God often uses troubling times, hardships in our life to deepen our experience of his love for us. This is what happened to a, a missionary couple, Charlie and Frankie Schaefer, who were serving the Lord in Germany. One morning when, when Frankie was getting ready to leave for a conference and her husband Charlie was out on a run, she waited and waited, but Charlie didn't come back home. Frankie became alarmed. She went looking for him in all of the likely places, but Charlie was nowhere to be found in any of them. After she called the police, she learned that Charlie had been picked up off the street, taken to the hospital after collapsing during his run. There was bleeding of an unknown cause inside his skull. Well, Frankie writes these words. She says, after Charlie's collapse, I felt distant from God. I was evading his presence. Although I continued to pray about the situation, through the many weeks of Charlie's hospitalization, I had gnawing questions whenever I slowed down. 
Why did this happen? Why did it happen when we were doing what we believe God wanted us to do? How could Charlie's collapse fit into God's plan? Why are we unable to lead the ministry that we so diligently prepared and prayed for? Well, Frankie writes that after a while, she gained courage to begin to direct those questions to God. And she says that an immediate response came, not through a voice, but through the peace of realizing God was assuring her, I am with you and I know. God also seemed to be saying to Frankie that deepening her love and trust in him was more important than ministering to others at that moment. You see, friends, instead of doubting God's love for us when we face challenges, instead of shaking a fist at God during hardship or loss, we're called to embrace the truth the truth that God may at times allow personal suffering in our lives to take us where he knows we must go so that we might experience the fullness of his love for us. You see, God does not just want to tell us that he loves us. He doesn't want us to just read it about his love for us. He wants to show us that he loves us. And this sometimes takes place in the context of pain and suffering and loss. Knowing, knowing that we are deeply loved by the Father can give us courage during those difficult times to keep on going talking about four words that keep us going. From sorrow to joy. From loss to love. And next, the, the third theme word that Jesus introduces in this passage is faith. Faith. Moving from questions to faith. Jesus explains the, the assurance that we receive the confidence that we receive when we live with true belief and faith in him. I want us to, to read some more of his words to the disciples in verses 29 through 31. Let's read the Lord's words. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from the God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Do you now believe? In this passage, we see that the disciples have kind of had their eyes opened a bit more suddenly, right? In regard to the, the pure depth and knowledge of the Savior, they say that he's spoken to them clearly, 
without riddles or figures of speech. He's now speaking in words that they can comprehend and digest. He's delved into the recesses of their minds to, to, uh, to the itch, if you will, of their unspoken questions. And he's perhaps given their soul a, a satisfying scratch. He, he not only answered what, what was asked of him, but he also addresses their thoughts as well. You know, our, our Lord has infinite knowledge and he also possesses the ability to use it wisely and perfectly. He reveals his ways so that we can know them. And yet it is humanly impossible for us to ever exhaust his ways, to ever fully comprehend them. Our complete understanding of God and his plans and his ways, that only comes when we can completely yield, giving up our way to walk his way, and we call that faith. There can be no full knowledge of God or his ways apart from our complete commitment. The more that we know him, the more that we will know him. And the more that we will move from asking questions about God, what in the world's going on here? Or questioning God himself. God, why are you allowing me to go through this? We will move from those kinds of questions to a place of full trust and faith. Even when we don't fully understand everything. Maybe all of our questions and our whys and our what fors won't be answered. But when we have full faith and trust, we can get to that place of strengthened, mature faith. Author Anne Voskamp put it this way. She wrote, every miracle always begins with the first ordinary step of faithfulness. Are you looking for God to show up in your life? Just keep taking steps of faith, one at a time. Ordinary steps of faith. Trust in God and see what might happen. This insight into God's ways enables believers to know Christ more fully, which then enables us to love him more deeply, which then leads us to follow him more completely, day by day. Joy, love, faith, these are the words that can keep us going. Not just words, but practices. Truths from God that fuel us through the minefield of this world. And then finally, one more theme word introduced by Jesus. The word is peace. Moving from tribulation to peace. In these last few words to his disciples, Jesus encourages them, and by the way, us as well, that we can possess peace even in the midst of tribulation. 
One more time, let's read his words together. John 16, 32 and 33. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. The words of Jesus. In our tribulations, in that word tribulation, it, 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 uh, the core meaning of it talks about being pressed, being uh, pressed in, that heavy weight. You ever feel that? Just this heavy weight upon you? Sometimes people say, well, just take a deep breath and let it out. Sometimes that'll help for a few minutes. But we need more than just breathing exercises to relieve that heavy weight, that dark black cloud that hangs above us. When we have tribulation, we must be driven to the one who says, take heart, take heart. Now, this is a, a phrase that Jesus uses all through the Gospels. We've seen it several times in the Gospel of John already. He told the paralyzed man, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He told the, the woman who, who was bleeding, she had that bleeding issue, and he said to her, take heart, your faith has saved you. He told his terrified disciples on the stormy sea, he said, take heart, it is me. Don't be afraid. And friends, this is a phrase that he says to you. And he says to me, he says, take heart. Take heart. Trust in me. Your sins are forgiven and you are saved. And so friends, in times of financial fears or family worries, or health hardships, or painful persecution, trials, disappointment, tribulation. Our Lord says, take heart. My son, my daughter, take heart. Why? Why does he say that? That's the second part of his statement. For I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. We learned a couple of weeks ago that phrase, the world, as John uses it. It's talking about the ways of this world, the schemes, the power struggles, all of the junk of this world. That's the world. And Jesus says to you and to me, he says, take heart. Hang in there. Believe. Trust me because I am greater than all of that junk in your life. Not only am I greater, I have overcome that stuff for you. I have overcome the world. And do you catch what's a little odd about that statement? It's a little mystifying, a little strange. What's unique about the timing? First of all, it would be prideful and arrogant if anyone but the Son of God had said, I have overcome the world. Only Jesus can say that. 
But I want you to see this. Note that he says, I have. I have. Jesus says this when? Before he dies, not after. He says this before he rose from the dead, not after. He had already overcome the world. You see, he knows the plan. He knows the purpose. He knows the outcome. And he's in control. And he knows that about your life as well. You're going to go through some ugly things. You're going to go through some hardship and some trials and some heartache. And Jesus says, I know. I've been there too. But it's okay. I've already overcome that for you. I've already overcome it. It's not the end. It's simply the beginning. His resurrection cements his victorious lordship of and over the world. This world of, that is so hurtful at times. Jesus has already overcome that. His resurrection assures victory over the world that hates him. And you know, that world cannot provide the peace that he offers. That world that rejoiced over the disciples' sorrow and pain. Jesus says, I've already taken care of that. The ruler of this world, this system, who's that? Satan. Guess what? He's already been judged. He's already been defeated. By faith, we are chosen out of this world when we trust in Jesus. And so he can move us from tribulation to peace. Rest. That overwhelming assurance that I'm okay. No matter what happens, I'm okay. Take heart. Our Lord has overcome the world. He has. And so what does that mean for you and for me? What does that mean for our tribulations? What does that mean when you're being pressed and squeezed? It means that his victory over the pressures facing us and the tribulations that we surely will endure and are coming are already completed. Even before we finish enduring them. Not just after. You see, that's the mystery of peace. We can face these things with faith and courage because his resurrection is the confirmation of his victory and promise. He is with us. We can truly experience peace. Peace in times of financial fears and family worries and health hardships, persecution, terrible events. We can experience peace because he has overcome the world. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Peace was a promise for those first century disciples. And friends, it is a promise for 21st century followers of Christ as well. You know, some Christians are only what we might call Christaholics. They're not disciples at all. They're not cross-bearers. Disciples are cross-bearers. 
Disciples dare to discipline themselves. And the demands they place on themselves leave them enjoying the happiness of their, of their growth. But Christaholics, they're just escapists. They're looking for a shortcut to easy, problem-free living. Like drug addicts, they are trying to numb the pain of this depressing world, but they're using Jesus to do it, or some form of Jesus, some false form of Jesus. But friends, I just want to say this to you. There is no automatic joy. There is no peace pill that you can take. Jesus is not a happiness capsule. He is the way to the Father. But the way to the Father is not necessarily a carnival ride in which we just sit there and enjoy it and do nothing while we're whisked through various spiritual sensations. There's people that will teach that to you and try to help you believe that, but it is a false gospel. It is only in living with determined trust in the one who has shown us the way that we can get to that place of peace. The peace that scripture says surpasses our own understanding. We can't even put words to it. You can't even fully explain it to somebody when you say, just trust Jesus, it'll be okay. That sounds like a, a platitude, some Christianese. But it's not, it's the truth when we fully trust in Jesus. Someone asked, uh, one time asked Hall of Fame football player Roger Staubach, he was the, the longtime quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys. They asked him about playing football with injuries. And they said, how do you, how do you keep on when you're playing professional football and get, get beat up week after week after week. And, and Roger said something important. His answer was, if you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. Now that sounds like some macho statement, right? But there's, there's some truth to that. Friends, it, it's like that with the Christian faith. We might say, if you're not living with some hurt, you're probably not really living the Christian faith. I think it's only appropriate to end our message with those last words that Jesus gave to his disciples one more time. In this world, you will have tribulation. You will, Jesus says. But, if you got your Bible out, underline that. But, take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the promise of our Lord. Let's pray together.